0: Hi folks, and welcome to Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray, and this is episode 45, called Three Stories of Man Gulch. We've talked before on this show about the different patterns that appear to appear in accident stories, and about the way storytelling choices can choose and change those patterns. In this episode, I'm going to explore that idea a little further, by giving you several separate stories about the same accident. I'll try to limit my
1: editorialising as much as possible to give you the full flavour of each point of view. My, my name is Dodge, but then you know that It's written on the chart there at the foot end of the bed They think I'm blind, but I can't read it but I've read it every word, and every word it says is death, So confession, is that the... Let's start with Wikipedia.
0: Wikipedia is intended to be a neutral source. That doesn't mean that it doesn't contain points of view, but its policies are aimed at describing the different sides in a debate rather than actually taking sides. So for this bit I'll quote directly from the Man Gulch fire page.
1: August forty-nine North Montana Hottest day on record and the forest tinder dry lightning strikes.
0: The Man Gulch Fire was a wildfire, reported on August fifth, nineteen forty-nine, in a gulch located along the Upper Missouri River, in the gates of the mountains wilderness. Helena National Forest, in the state of Montana, in the United States. A team of 15 smokejumpers parachuted into the area on the afternoon of August 5, 1949, to fight the fire, rendezvousing with a former smokejumper who was employed as a fireguard at the nearby campground. As the team approached the fire to begin fighting it, unexpected high winds caused the fire to suddenly expand, cutting off the men's route and forcing them back uphill, during the next few minutes, a blow-up of the fire covered 3,000 acres in 10 minutes, claiming the lives of 13 firefighters, including 12 of the smoke jumpers. Three of the smoke jumpers survived. The fire would continue for five more days before being controlled. The United States Forest Service drew lessons from the tragedy of the Mangulch fire by designing new training techniques and safety measures that developed how the agency approached wildfire suppression. The agency also increased emphasis on fire research and the science of fire behaviour. The fire started when lightning struck the south side of Mangulch at the gates of the mountains, a canyon over five miles long that cuts through a series of 1,200 foot cliffs. The place was noted and named by Lewis and Clark on their journey west in 1805. The fire was spotted by forest ranger James O. Harrison around noon on August 5, 1949. Harrison a college student at Montana State University was working the summer as recreation and fire prevention guard for the Meriwether Canyon campground. The previous year he'd been a smoke jumper, but had given it up because of the danger. As a ranger, he still had a responsibility to watch for and help fight fires, but it was not his primary role. On this day, he fought the fire on his own for four hours before he met the crew of smoke jumpers who'd been dispatched from Hale Field. Mazalta, Montana, in a C 47. It was hot, with a temperature of 97 degrees Fahrenheit, and the fire danger rating was high, rated 74 out of a possible 100. Wind conditions that day were turbulent. One smoke jumper got sick on the way and did not jump, returning with the airplane to Hale Field. Getting off the plane, he resigned from the smoke jumpers. In all, 15 smoke jumpers parachuted into the fire. Their radio was destroyed during the jump after its parachute failed to open, while other gear and individual jumpers were scattered widely due to the conditions. After the smoke jumpers had landed, a shout was heard coming from the front of the fire. Foreman Wagner Dodge went ahead to find the person shouting and to scout the fire. He left instructions for the team to finish gathering their equipment and eat, then crossed the gully to the south slope and advance to the front of the fire. The voice turned out to be Jim Harrison, who had been fighting the fire himself for the past four hours. The two headed back, Dodge noting that you could not get closer to within 100 feet of the fire due to the heat. The crew met Dodge and Harrison about halfway to the fire. Dodge instructed the team to move off the front of the fire and down the gully, crossing back over to the thinly forested and grass-covered north slope of the gulch, side-hilling, keeping the same contour elevation, and moving down Gulch towards the Missouri River. They could then fight the flyer from the flank or behind, steering the fire to a low fuel area. Dodge returned with Harrison up the gulch to the supply area, where the two stopped to eat before returning for the all-night work of fighting the fire. While there, Dodge noticed the smoke along the fire front boiling up, indicating an intensification of the heat of the fire. He and Harrison headed down the gulch to catch up with the crew. By the time Dodge reached his men, the fire at the bottom of the gulch was already jumping from the high south slope of Man Gulch to the bottom of the north side of the gulch. As the fire jumped across to the bottom of the north slope, the intense heat of the fire combined with wind coming off the river and pushing the flames up the gulch into the fast burning north slope grass, causing what the fire's fighters call a blow up. The crew could not see the bottom of the gulch, the various side ridges running down the slope obscuring their view, and they initially continued down the side of the ridge. When Dodge finally got a glimpse of what was happening below, he turned the men around and started the mangling back up the side of the ridge. Within a couple of hundred yards, he ordered the men to drop packs and heavy tools. By this point, the fire was moving extremely fast up the 37-degree slope of Mangulch, and Dodge realised they would not be able to make the ridge line in front of the fire. With the fire less than 100 yards behind, he took a match out, and set fire to the grass just before them. In doing so, he was attempting to create an escape fire to lie in, so that the main fire would burn around him and his crew. In the backdraft of the main fire, the grass fire set burned straight up toward the ridge above. Turning to the three men by him, Robert Saley, Walter Rumsey and Eldon Deatert, Dodge said, up this way. But the men misunderstood him. The three ran straight up for the ridge crest, moving along the far edge of Dodge's fire. Saley later said that he wasn't sure what Dodge was doing, and thought perhaps he intended the fire to act as a buffer between the men and the main fire. It was not until he got to the ridge crest and looked back down that he realised what Dodge had intended. As the rest of the crew came up, Dodge tried to direct them through the fire headset and into the centre burnt-out area. Dodge later stated that someone, possibly squad leader William Hellman, said, To hell with that, I'm getting out of here! The rest of the team raced on past Dodge up the slope towards the hogback of Mangulch Ridge, hoping they had enough time to get through the rock ridge line and over to safety ground on the other side. None of the men racing up before the fire entered into the escape fire. Four of the men reached the ridge crest, but only two, Bob Saley and Walter Rumsey, managed to escape through a crevice or deep fissure in the rock ridge to reach the other side. In the dense smoke of the fire, the two had no way of knowing if the crevice they found actually went through to the other side or would be a blind trap. Deatterd had been just to the right, slightly up gulch of Salie and Rumsey, but he did not drop back to the crevice and continued on up to the right side of the hogback. He did not find another escape route and was overtaken by the fire. Salie and Rumsey came through the hogback to the ridge crest above what became known as Rescue Gulch. Dropping down off the ridge, they managed to find a rock slide with little to no vegetation. They waited there for the fire to overtake them, moving from the bottom of the slide to the top as the fire moved past. Hellman was caught by the fire on the top of the ridge and was badly burned. Though he and Joseph Sylvia initially survived the fire, they suffered heavy injuries and both died in hospital the next day. Wag Dodge entered the charred area of the escape fire he'd built, and survived the intensely burning main fire. Dodge stated that the updrafts generated by the fire moving past him were so intense they caused him to be lifted off the ground several times. Of those crew members caught in the oxygen demanding main fire, unburnt patches underneath their bodies indicate that they had suffered for lack of air before the fire caught them. The events described above all transpired in a relatively short period of time. Everyone had jumped by around 4.10pm. The scattered cargo had been gathered at about 5pm. At about 5.45pm the crew had seen the fire coming up towards them on the north slope and had turned to run. By four minutes to six, the fire had swept over them. The time at which the fire engulfed the men was judged by the melted hands on Harrison's pocket watch, forever frozen at 5.56pm by the intense heat. Studies estimated that the fire covered 3,000 acres in 10 minutes during this blow-up stage, an hour and 45 minutes after they'd arrived. Thirteen firefighters died, with 11 killed in the fire itself and two who sustained fatal burns. Only three of the
1: 16 survived. In the I was crew chief at the jump base, I prepared the boys to fly. Pick the drop zone, C-47 comes in low. Feel the tap upon your leg that tells you go. See the circle of the fire down the hole fifteen of us dropped above the cold Missouri waters.
0: So that's the first account. Remember, that's from Wikipedia, intended to be fairly neutral. This next story is from Richard Rothermel, a fire researcher. It's extracted from an article he wrote called Man-Gulch Fire – A Race That Couldn't Be Won. This paper examines the probable behaviour of the fire, and the movements of the crew during the last 20 minutes of the tragedy. The analysis is a reconstruction of what probably happened. Even though events late in the story appear to be worked out precisely, they cannot be verified and must be taken for what they are. Reconstructed Estimates Analysis of fire behaviour requires data on fuels, weather, topography and the fire situation. For those readers who wonder how it's even remotely possible to reconstruct these events, five types of information make it possible. 1. The location of the crew's movements and actions were recorded. The distances between significant actions were checked and measured. 2. The crew's foreman survived. His testimony during the initial investigation provided estimates of the fire's position with respect to the crew at significant moments. 3. Archived weather data and site maps were available. 4. Survivors Saley and Rumsey recalled the types of vegetation cover they were moving through. 5. Calculations of the fire's approximate rate of spread along sections of the route were integrated with known distances and times, to estimate the rate at which the crew travelled. The fire's rate of spread, its intensity and its flame length were calculated by using mathematical models developed from a combination of laboratory fire experiments and field data. The Main Gulch fire was spotted at 12.25pm on August 5, 1949. A very hot and windy day. The fire was in the Gates of the Mountains wild area, just east of the Missouri River, 20 miles north of Helena, Montana. Temperatures that day reached 97 degrees Fahrenheit in Helena. The fire started near the top of a ridge between Mann Gulch and Meriwether Canyon. Mann Gulch is a minor drainage leading into the Missouri River from the east. It is funnel-shaped, narrowing to a width of one-quarter one of a mile at the river. The highest flanking ridge where the fire started is on the south side of the drainage between Mangulch and Meriwether Canyon. The ridge on the north side of the drainage, where the fire overran the crew, is not as high as the ridge to the south. Vegetation on the north side of Mangulch was mature 60 to more than 100-year-old Ponderosa pine. The south side was covered with 15 to 50-year-old Douglas fir mixed with mature ponderosa pine and some mature juniper. Fronting the river was a stand of 60 to more than 80-year-old Douglas fir. Mixed pine and fir grew in the bottom of the gulch. At the time of the fire, lower elevations had heavier undergrowth, which gave way to scattered timber and grass in the drier areas further up the gulch. Access to this roadless area is difficult. Therefore smoke jumpers were called when the fire was discovered. One of the basic tenets of firefighting is to reach a fire quickly, then it can be attacked while it's still small. Smoke jumpers are very effective at reaching a fire quickly because they travel by aeroplane, and use parachutes to land near the fire. The jump, completed between 3.50 and 4.10pm, was considered routine. The cargo drop did not go smoothly though. The plane, a twin-engine DC-3, encountered heavy turbulence at normal drop altitude, and was forced to climb before dropping the remaining cargo. Firefighting gear was scattered and the crew's radio was broken. By the time the jumpers gathered their gear it was nearly 5pm. They did not feel the fire threatened them then. While getting the crew and equipment organised, Foreman Dodge heard someone shouting near the fire. He instructed squad leader William Hellman to equip the crew and lead them down the north side of Man Gulch, towards the Missouri River, while Dodge went ahead to see who was shouting. Near the top of the ridge close to the head of the fire, Dodge met James Harrison, a recreation and fire prevention guard from the Helena National Forest. Harrison, based at nearby Meriwether Campground, had been the first to spot the fire and had been trying to keep it from crossing into Meriwether Canyon while he awaited help. The fire was still moving northeast along the ridge between Gulch and Meriwether Canyon. Dodge decided the ridge was not the safest place to attack the fire. So he and Harrison did not stay there. After a quick lunch, they caught up with Hellman and the crew who were traversing the slope, heading down the gulch towards the Missouri River. The smoke jumpers believed they were going to attack the fire in another location, certainly a safer location that would be on the upwind side of the fire near the river. Dodge had a clear view of the fire and could see it was burning more rapidly than before. In Helena, The wind had been blowing from the north and east at 6 to 8 miles an hour that afternoon. At 3.30pm the wind switched to the south, increased to 24 miles an hour, and continued to blow strongly from the south at 14 to 22 miles an hour. Because of the orientation of the canyons and ridges, a strong southerly wind would create extreme turbulence at the mouth of Man Gulch, producing strong winds that would blow up the gulch toward the crew. Foreman Dodge and Recreation Guard Harrison overtook the crew at about 5.40pm. Survivors Salie and Rumsey both said the crew was not worried about safety, but Salie thought he heard Dodge say something about the thicket of ponderosa pine and Douglas fir they were in being a death trap. They continued down the canyon for another five minutes, covering about 400 yards, when they saw fire blocking their route to the river. Firebrands from the main fire had started spot fires in the timber ahead of them. These fires were rapidly becoming more intense. During discussions after the tragedy that followed, fire experts were particularly concerned with understanding how the fire got from the ridge high on the south side of Man Gulch, to the mouth of the gulch and later to the north side. To this day, two opinions persist. One is that downdrafts of a small local thunderstorm blew the fire off the ridge into the mouth of the canyon. Other fire experts suspected whirlwinds may have spread the fire. Fire whirls and downdrafts from thunderstorms, or the fire's convection column, can occur together. The spot fires, which had started in heavy surface fuels, would have become intense, with flames extending into the tree crowns and climbing the tree boles. The tree crowns would have caught fire, and the strong gusty winds would have pushed the fire through the crowns. The crew could see a convection column of black smoke from the burning tree crowns between them and the Missouri River. The fire at this stage was burning in a stand of much denser forest than they were in farther up the gulch. Fuels in the area where the spot fires started were estimated to have been timber litter and live understory vegetation, interspersed with accumulations of heavy wood and down woody material. The wind-driven crown fire burning up the slope would have spread 4 to 6 times faster than the surface fire, or 80 to 120 feet per minute. Once the crown fire developed on the steep slope and was being driven by the turbulent winds, it would have spread at the faster rate of 120 feet per minute. At 120 feet per minute, the crown fire would spread 400 yards in another 10 minutes, arriving at a place called Point One at about 5.50, or four to six minutes after the crew had turned around and headed back up the gulch. Um, This is Drew interspersing here. Point one is a thing marked on a diagram as where the firefighters turned around and started heading back away from the fire. Continuing, Foreman Dodge said the fire was 150 to 200 yards away when the crew turned around. The surviving crew members, Rumsey and Saley, recognized the danger and quickly moved up to stay close to Dodge. As the crew moved back up the canyon, the timber began to thin. More grass and brush appeared in the understory. The crew may not have recognised the consequences of the fuel change. The lighter fuel would have produced a faster spreading fire. Other factors were also in the fire's favour. The fire was burning uphill with a following wind. The uphill grade slowed the crew, but it caused the fire to accelerate. The crew continued hurrying across the slope along an 18% uphill grade. The survivors reported that they travelled through tall grass much of the time. Grass would have been fully dried out at this low elevation. As the timber thinned, the fire would have been more exposed to the wind. We estimated mid-flame winds increased from 5 to about 7.5 miles an hour in the thinner timber. We assumed the wind, although gusty and variable, was blowing in the same direction the crew was hurrying. The fire's rate of spread through the grass would have been about 170 to 280 feet per minute, considerably faster than the earlier 120 foot per minute rate of spread. In the grass, flame lengths would have reached 16 to 20 feet. The fire would still have been burning through the crowns, but since the trees were more scattered, the surface fire was probably moving ahead of the crown fire. After turning around, the crew went faster through each successive leg of the journey. But the fire went even faster. Dodge told his crew to discard their heavy tools. Most of the crew realise now that they were in real trouble. In his testimony, Dodge said that when the crew members dropped their tools, the fire was only 75 to 100 yards behind them. If the fire were travelling at 280 feet per minute, it would cover that distance in about one minute. Therefore, the crew would have dropped tools about one minute ahead of the fire. For the next leg, to where Dodge lit the escape fire, conditions were similar, except that the timber was even thinner. This allowed the wind near the surface to increase to an estimated 9 to 13 miles an hour. Consequently, the fire's spread rate would have increased to somewhere between 360 and 610 feet per minute. Flame lengths in the surface vegetation would have been 24 to 30 feet with the flames from crowning trees reaching much higher. The most pernicious effect of the crew's retreat up the canyon was that they had moved out of the timber into open areas more exposed to the wind. Most fire fatalities have occurred in flashy fuels or on the periphery of larger fires. Fires spread rapidly in light fuels and can change direction and accelerate quickly as the wind shifts. Ironically, the crew did not reduce their danger when they moved into lighter fuels. In fact, the fire would have accelerated in the lighter, flashier fuels, especially as the surface wind became stronger. The crew may have broken up after dropping their tools. The official report states all tools were found within a 100-foot circle, so the crew was together at that point. Saley said that Navon, a former paratrooper who'd fought with 82nd Airborne Division in World War II, could be seen up the slope ahead of the crew. Others may already have joined him because the final position of the bodies showed four crew members travelled much further than the others. From the point where the crew dropped their tools to the point where Dodge lit, lit the escape fire is about 240 yards. If the fire were spreading from 360 to 610 feet per minute, it would have covered that distance in one to two minutes. When the crew emerged from the trees into the grass, dodge must have realized they could not reach safety and conceived the idea of burning away a small clearing this escape fire as it's come to be called would quickly clear an area where the crew could go after the fine fuels burned away giving them a chance to escape the flames of the main fire dodge sized up the situation better than most of his crew who either thought that they could outrun the fire or saw no other alternative some If not all of the crew stopped briefly to see what Dodge was doing, and listened to his pleas for them to get into the burned-out area he was preparing. Someone is reported to have said, To hell with that, I'm getting out of here. No one stayed with Dodge. The crew members split up afterward, with the majority continuing to run up the canyon. Some travelled on the contour, and others went slightly downhill. The slowest of the crew members only got about a hundred yards before being caught by the fire. One man broke his leg while fleeing on the steep rocky slope. The fire could have covered a hundred yards in less than a minute at its calculated rate of 600 to 750 feet per minute. Dodge estimated the men were caught in 30 seconds. If they had a 15 second lead on the fire after leaving him, and travelled a hundred yards before being caught 45 seconds later, They would have been running at about 400 feet per minute, or four and a half miles an hour. A little faster than they were running when they approached Dodge. Much of what happened in the final moments probably can't be explained simply by the fire catching up to the firefighters. Firebrands may have been falling among them starting new fires. They could have continued running for some time even after the fire caught them and was burning sporadically around them. We see the crew increasing their pace, but the fire accelerates even faster. The end of a race the firefighters could not win. Three smoke jumpers survived uninjured. Dodge in his escape fire, and Salian Rumsey who took the shortest but steepest route directly up the slope to the ridge top. One of the fascinating features of the Rocky Mountains is the rock formation known as Rimrock. It appears as a wall of rock along the rims of canyons or around the top of flat mountains known as Buttes. Rimrock is nearly perpendicular varying in height depending on how much material has sloughed away. In Main Gulch, the Rimrock is 6 to 12 feet high, broken occasionally by crevices. When Dodge lit the escape fire, a curious thing happened. The low-intensity grass fire he started did not run before the main fire that was being driven up the canyon by strong winds. According to Saley, Dodge's fire spread directly up the slope to the left of the route the crew had been travelling toward the Rimrock. This behaviour is contrary to normal expectations. Since the crew did not understand why Dodge was firing the grass, no one stayed with him. Saley and Rumsey thought Dodge had set a fire that would somehow shield them from the main fire. These two men, along with another jumper, scrambled up the right-hand side of Dodge's fire to the base of the Rimrock. Fortunately, Saley and Rumsey found a crevice in the Rimrock, through which they climbed to the relative safety of the ridge above. Here, Rumsey collapsed in a juniper bush, too exhausted to move, until Salie rousted him out. They took refuge in a rock slide nearby. The third jumper, who followed the pair to the base of the rim rock, did not go through the crevice to the ridge above. His body was found at the base of the rim rock a few hundred feet away. The squad boss Hellman also ran towards the rim rock, but he went up the left side of the escape fire, putting him between the main fire and the escape fire. He was caught somewhere near the crevice in the Rimbrock. Although he made it over the top, he died from his burns the next day. Dodge lay down within the area he'd burned off. The grassy slope quickly burned away, giving him a large area free of fuels to prevent the main fire's flames or radiation from injuring him. Dodge said fierce winds lifted him off the ground three times during the few minutes it took the fire to pass over him. At 6.10, Dodge was able to sit up and move about between the pockets of fire that were still burning. The most obvious thing about Rothermel's story is the level of detail. Details can make an account seem more accurate, closer to some real truth. But remember that Rothermel himself warns about that, suggests that actually a lot of these things are extrapolation. They're vivid and detailed, but they are just guesses at what happened and think back over what the details are. All of the extra information is about the behaviour of the fire, and why the beha- fire behaved in that way. In fact, in Rodham Hill's account, the fire is really the protagonist of the story. It's a force of nature with very detailed reasons for doing what it does. By contrast, the smoke jumpers are almost cardboard cut-out characters. Apart from a couple of key moments where they turn around, where Dodge lights the escape fire, where the others run, where Saley and Rumsey make it through the crevice, the humans are all reacting rather than acting. And even these decisions are given short treatment compared to the behaviour of the fire. The fire is complex, the humans are pretty simple, the way Rothermel tells the story. Fire.
1: That so I ordered them to side hill, we'd fight it from below. We'd have our backs to the river. We'd have it licked by morning, even if we took it slow. But the fire crowned, jumped the valley just ahead. This next
0: version is by Carl Wake. He's one of the high reliability organisations people. It's from an article called The Collapse of Sense Making in Organizations The Man Gulch Disaster At its heart, the Man Gulch Disaster is a story of a race. The smoke jumpers in the race, excluding foreman Wag Wagner Dodge and Ranger Jim Harrison, were ages seventeen to twenty eight, unmarried, seven of them were forestry students, and twelve of them had seen military service. They were a highly select group, and often described themselves as professional adventurers. A lightning storm passed over Gulch area at 4pm on August 4, 1949, and is believed to have set a small fire in a dead tree. The next day, August 5, 1949, the temperature was 97 degrees and the fire danger rating was 74 out of a possible 100, which means explosive potential. When the fire was spotted by a forest ranger, the smoke jumpers were dispatched to fight it. 16 of them flew out of Missoula, Montana at 2:30 p.m. in a C47 transport. Wind conditions that day were turbulent, and one smoke jumper got sick on the airplane, didn't jump, returned to base with the plane, and resigned from the smoke jumpers as soon as he landed. The smoke jumpers and their cargo were dropped on the south side of Man Gulch at 4:10 p.m from 2,000 feet rather than the normal 1,200 feet due to the turbulence. The parachute that was connected to their radio failed to open, and the radio was pulverised when it hit the ground. The crew met ranger Jim Harrison, who had been fighting the fire alone for four hours, collected their supplies and ate supper. About 5.10 they started to move along the south side of the gulch to surround the fire. Dodge and Harrison, however, having scouted ahead, were worried that the thick forest near which they'd landed might be a death trap. They told the second-in-command, William Hellman, to take the crew across to the north side of the gulch and march them toward the river along the side of the hill. While Hellman did this, Dodge and Harrison ate a quick meal. Dodge rejoined the crew at 5.40pm and took his position at the head of the line moving toward the river. He could see flames flapping back and forth on the south slope as he looked to his left. At this point Dodge saw that the fire had crossed the gulch two hundred yards ahead and was moving toward them. Dodge turned the crew around and had them angled up the hill toward the ridge at the top. They were soon moving through bunch of grass that was two and a half feet tall and were quickly losing ground to the thirty foot high flames that were soon moving toward them at like six hundred ten feet per minute. Dodge yelled at the crew to drop their tools and then to everyone's astonishment he lit a fire in front of them and ordered them to lie down in the area it had burned. No one did, and they all ran for the ridge. Two people, Salie and Rumsey, made it through a crevice in the ridge unburned. Hellman made it over the ridge, burned horribly, and died at noon the next day. Dodge lived by lying down in the ashes of his escape fire, and one other person, Joseph Sylvia, lived for a short while and then died. The hands on Harrison's watch melted at 5.56, which has been treated officially as the time the 13 people died. After the fire passed, Dodge found Salie and Rumsey, and Rumsey stayed to care for Hellman while Salie and Dodge hiked out for help. They walked into the Meriwether Ranger Station at 8.50pm, and rescue parties immediately set out to recover the dead and dying. All the dead were found in an area 100 yards by 300 yards. It took 450 men, 5 more days, to get the 4,500-acre Mangulch fire under control. At the time the crew jumped on the fire, it was classified as a Class C fire, meaning its scope was between 10 and 99 acres. When the smokejumpers landed at Mangulch, they expected to find what they had come to call a 10 o'clock fire. A 10 o'clock fire is one that can be surrounded completely and isolated by 10 o'clock the next morning. The spotters on the aircraft that carried the smoke jumpers figured the crew would have it under control by 10 o'clock the next morning. People rationalized this image until it was too late. And because they did, less and less of what they saw made sense. 1. The crew expects a 10 o'clock fire, but grows uneasy when this fire does not act like one. 2. Crew members wonder how this fire can be all that serious if Dodge and Harrison eat supper while they hike toward the river. Number three, people are often unclear who's in charge of the crew. Number four, the flames on the south side of the gulch look intense, yet one of the smoke jumpers, David Navon, is taking pictures, so people conclude the fire can't be that serious, even though their senses tell them otherwise. Five, Crew members know they're moving toward the river where they'll be safe from the fire, only to see Dodge inexplicably turn them round away from the river and start angling upslope, but not running straight for the top. Why? Dodge is the only one who sees the fire jump the gulch ahead of them. 6. As the fire gains on them, Dodge says, Drop your tools. But if the people in the crew do that, then who are they? Firefighters? With no tools? 7. The foreman lights a fire that seems to be right in the middle of the only escape route people can see. 8. The foreman points to the fire he started and yells, join me, whatever that means. But his second-in-command sounds like he's saying, to hell with that, I'm getting out of here. 9. Each individual faces the dilemma. I must be my own boss, yet follow orders unhesitatingly but I can't comprehend what the orders mean, and I'm losing my race with the advancing fire. As Mangult loses its resemblance to a 10 o'clock fire, it does so in ways that make it increasingly hard to socially construct reality. When the noise created by wind, flames, and exploding trees is deafening, when people are strung out in a line and relative strangers to begin with, when there are people who love the universe but are not intimidated by it, when the temperature is approaching a lethal 140 degrees, people can neither validate their impressions with a trusted neighbour, or pay close attention to a boss who's also unknown, and whose commands make no sense whatsoever. As if these were not obstacles enough, it's hard to make common sense when each person sees something different or nothing at all because of the smoke. The crew's stubborn belief that it faced a 10 o'clock fire is a powerful reminder that positive illusions can kill people. But the more general point is that organisations can be good at decision-making and still falter. They falter because of deficient sense-making. The world of decision-making is about strategic rationality. It's built from clear questions and clear answers that attempt to remove ignorance. The world of sense-making is different. Sense-making is about contextual rationality. It's built out of vague questions, muddy answers, and negotiated agreements that attempt to reduce confusion. People in Mangalt did not face questions like, where should we go, when do we take a stand, or what should our strategy be. Instead, they faced the more basic, the more frightening feeling that their old labels were no longer working. They were outstripping their past experience, and we were not sure either what was up or who they were. Until they developed some sense of issues like this, there's nothing to decide. Sense-making was not the only problem in Mangulch. There were also problems of structure. It seems plausible to argue that a major contributor to this disaster was the loss of the only structure that kept these people organised, their role system. There were two key events that destroyed the organisation that tied these people together. First, when Dodge told Hellman to take the crew to the north side of the gulch and have it follow a contour down toward the river, the crew got confused, the spaces between members widened appreciably, and Nivon, the person taking pictures, made a bid to take over leadership of the group. Notice what this does to the role system. There's now no one at the end of the line repeating orders as a check on the accuracy with which they're understood. Furthermore, the person who's leading them, Hellman, is more familiar with implementing orders than with constructing them or plotting possible escape routes. So the crew is left for a crucial period of time with ill-structured, unacknowledged orders shouted by someone who's unaccustomed to being firm or noticing escape routes. Both routines and interlocking are beginning to come apart. The second, and in some way more unsettling threat to the role system, occurred when Dodge told the retreating crew, throw away your tools. A fire crew that retreats from a fire should find its identity and morale strained. If the retreating people are then also told to discard the very things that are their reason for being there in the first place, then the moment quickly turns existential. If I'm no longer a firefighter, then who am I? With the fire bearing down, the only possible answer becomes an endangered person in a world where it's every man for himself. Thus, people who'd perpetually been almost their own boss suddenly became completely their own boss at the worst possible moment. As the entity of a crew dissolved, it's not surprising that the final command from the crew leader to jump into an escape fire was heard not as a legitimate order, but as the ravings of someone who'd gone nuts. Dodger's command lost its basis of legitimacy when the smoke jumpers threw away their organisation along with their tools. It's intriguing that the three people who survived the disaster did so in ways that seemed to forestall group disintegration. Saley and Rumsey stuck together. Their small group of two people did not disintegrate, which helped them keep their fear under control. As a result, they escaped through a crack in the ridge that the others either didn't see or thought was too small to squeeze through. Wag Dodge, as the former leader of a group he presumed still existed, ordered his followers to join him in the escape fire. Dodge continued to see a group and to think about its well-being, which helped keep his own fear... Under control. The rest of the people, however, took less notice of one another. Consequently, the group as they knew it disintegrated. As their group disintegrated, the smoke jumpers became more frightened, stopped thinking sooner, pulled apart even more, and in doing so, lost a leader follower relationship, as well as access to the novel ideas of other people who are a lot like them. As these relationships disappeared, Individuals reverted to primitive tendencies of flight. Unfortunately, this response was too simple to match the complexity of the Mangulch fire. What holds organisation in place may be more tenuous than we realise. The recipe for disorganisation in Mangulch is not all that rare in everyday life. The recipe reads, thrust people into unfamiliar roles, leave some key roles unfilled, make the task more ambiguous, discredit the role system, and make all of these changes in a context in which small events can combine into something monstrous. Faced with similar conditions, organisations that seem much sturdier may also come crashing down, much like Icarus who overreached his competence as he flew toward the sun, and also perished because of fire.
1: I struck a match to waste high grass, running out of time. Tried to tell them, step into this fire. I've said, we can't make it. This is the only chance you'll get. But they cursed me, ran for the rocks above instead. They faced down and prayed above the cold Missouri water. Rhetorical flower to the side.
0: And Wake is big on the rhetorical flourishes. The difference with his account is that it's hardly about the fire at all. Wake is trying to get inside the heads of the actors, and he provides details which match. It's not that he has less detail than Rotherfell, it's just that his detail is all about the people. He talks about the age and background of the jumpers, he talks about their military service. He talks about their group roles and the way the group communicates. He talks about how the team is put together. He speculates not only about what they could see and hear, but about what they believed. Now, it's very easy to say that Wake's account is less objective than the other two. Rotherfell uses models which explain how wind and fire behave. And he's very frank that even these precise mathematical empirical models are themselves assumptions. Wake, on the other hand, uses theories that explain how individuals and groups behave. And these social and psychological models are necessarily more context dependent, and they make weaker predictions with more assumptions. They're trying to work out what's going on inside people's heads using only externally observable behaviours. Just imagine how well could Rotherfell have explained the fire afterwards if he had no information about all the inside stuff, nothing about the contours, the vegetation or the weather, just the witness reports of the fire moving. That's kind of what Wake's working with when he tries to explain the people's behaviour. But which story is better at explaining what we need to know? If we want to predict fire behaviour in the future, then Rotherfell tells us a lot more than Wake. If we want to improve group behaviour, though, then maybe Wake has something to tell us. Of course, that requires us to trust Wake's story. And this is where we run into problems. You see, Wikipedia, Wake and Rutherfell, all draw almost entirely on one particular source. A book called Young Men and Fire by Norman MacLean you would have noticed some strange details cropping up in all three accounts. That's because they're taken straight from Norman Maclean's book. Rutherfeld was actually involved in doing some of the fire modelling and calculation for the book. When you start with a single story, trying to add explanations afterwards doesn't actually generate new data. Not unless your theory prompts you to go looking for and finding new data. There are lots of theories that can fit with the same set of facts, and there's a shortage of ways to test out those theories. You know, if I can fit 50 different stories to the same information, how do I know which of these 50 stories is true? Only by the predictions that they make. So, shall we put 15 more firefighters back into Man Gulch, this time with different teamwork training, and see what happens? I don't think so. Well, that's it for this episode of Disastercast. A little bit different, but I hope you found it interesting. This episode was brought to you by Hunter, Patrick, Abraham and John, the Patreon supporters for Disastercast. A particular thank you to Hunter as the newest supporter. You can support the show yourself at patreon.com slash disastercast or visit the website at disastercast.co.uk. Till next time. Keep safe.